I think we'll jump in. Um, this, is good. this is our final session thus far of You Be the Judge. And the purpose of this course is really to explore contemporary legal matters, legal cases, interesting and compelling legal issues from a perspective of Jewish law as well as U.S. law. And today I think we have a really, really fascinating topic, and that is burden of proof. So when we talk about the justice system, the question becomes, what is the standard of evidence that is accepted by a court, by a court of law? What is the burden of proof required by the law? By US law, Talmudic law, um, how does, and if we focus on Jewish law, how does the Bet Din, the Jewish court of law, actually determine truth? How, how does the court, I'm going to say we, because you and I are the judges in this course, right? You be the judge, I be the judge, we all be the judge. So how do we, judges, determine the truth when a case is brought before us? How does that actually work? So there are several methods for determining truth. You could base it off eyewitness accounts. People, people say, hey, we saw this happen, and this uh, such and such happened. You have witnesses that share their recollection of the events. There is another form of proof, which is inductive reasoning, which is basically um, circumstantial evidence. You know, you have what seems to be a clear narrative based on the evidence. So you don't have any eyewitnesses that say that they saw it happen, but based on all of the evidence and all of the facts that we know, it seems highly likely, most probable, that this is the scenario that went down. Does that make sense so far? Yes? Thumbs up? All right, so far so good. And the third option is what we might call deductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning would be different than inductive. Deductive would be when we rule out other scenarios and say it couldn't have been this, it couldn't have been that, it couldn't have been the other, so it must be the only option that remains. This is the process of elimination method of trying to prove something or infer that something indeed occurred. Okay, so here we have three, and there's certainly there's more, and today we have DNA evidence and all this other stuff. Okay, but in general, you have classically three different ways of trying to prove or ascertain something, either through eyewitness testimony, inductive reasoning, which means that the, the evidence points to a certain conclusion, or deductive reasoning, where we're kind of uh, re, um, eliminating other options, which leaves us with one possibility. Um, we've all watched Perry Mason. Yes. Matlock, was that Matlock? Was that a guy? Matlock? Yes. Okay. Um, what else? Who are the other great criminal? Uh, these guys were criminal defense or prosecution? Remind me. Do we remember? Defense, I think. Defense. Defense. Oftentimes in these criminal defense uh, shows or movies or whatever, it's part, part of the defense is to prove that this couldn't have happened, right? Or that someone else did it and, and that sort of thing. So how do you prove that something happened? How do you prove it? So that's what we're going to explore today. 
famously, let me just start off with uh, a quick, quick uh, overview of U.S. law. In the United States, there are many forms of evidence that are, that are admissible in court. And um, the reality is that the court system, the criminal justice system, and the, the legal system in the U.S. is not perfect. It's certainly advanced, and it's certainly in a, you know, in a much better place than others, um, but it's not perfect. And uh, there's been questions about what type of evidence should and should not be allowed in the, uh, in, the, in the legal system, in the, in, the, um, in the criminal justice system. And it's a, big, it's a big issue, it's a big question, and sometimes it's a big problem. So we're gonna look at this through a Jewish perspective. Now, I wanna give you a disclaimer, not a disclaimer, but a, a, a word of note. We've done, I've taught before, um, I think we did it at the new building even, not that long ago, a few years ago, I mean, it's now, everything's been a few years, right, since we were in person, um, it feels like. But we did a course called Crime and Consequence on Criminal Justice Law. This is not that class or from that course. This is a different class. Um, but it's touching on occasionally some things that may be familiar if you took that course. But we have an entirely different angle today. So let's talk about burden of proof, burdens of evidence from a Jewish perspective, from a Talmudic perspective. Because we know that U.S. system has its challenges, its, its, its advantages, but it also its challenges. So let's look at how this is defined in Jewish law and in the Talmud. So the first thing I'm gonna do is bring up a text. And let me make sure I have this, yes I do. Let me share this with you all. As my daughter says, sharing is caring. Um, Riva is five, by the way, Kenai Nahara. It's been, uh, who can imagine, who can believe it, right? Five years. All right, determining truth. Biblical roots. Text number one. This is from the book of Deuteronomy, and this talks about the burden of proof or evidence in Jewish law from the Bible, from the Torah. A single witness shall not stand up against any man for any iniquity or for any sin regarding any sin that he may have committed by the word of two witnesses, or by the word of three witnesses, shall a matter be confirmed. So the first thing we want to establish in today's session is the biblical standard of evidence, which is two eyewitnesses. And the Torah, the Bible says, black and white, a single witness does not count as evidence. In other words, if one witness comes to the court and says, I saw so-and-so take the life of so-and-so, I saw it with my own eyes, etc., the court certainly listens to the evidence, but it is not admissible. It's not, you, you cannot prosecute or convict. You cannot convict, uh, more precisely, based on the evidence of a single witness. Rather, it must be at least two witnesses, two witnesses, three witnesses, or more, etc. That is, that is the burden of evidence. Now, here's the question. And this is a question that the great scholars, Jewish scholars, have pondered over the years. 
What's the reason why? And, and I'm going to open this, open up this discussion, and, and and begin by asking you this question, and then I'll share with you what others have have written about this. Um, so here's my opening question: Why do you think two witnesses are considered to be valid evidence, whereas one one witness is not considered to be a valid form of evidence in Jewish law? Why do you think? Give me a rationale for this. Well, two is stronger than one. Okay. You know, one, one can, um, if the two witnesses agree, it's stronger than just one person. I, I, I don't know how I'm saying it. It's stronger than one person. Good, okay, good, 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 good. What else? What else? Good, excellent. Somebody with any, any other thoughts or any different way of framing it? The two witnesses may have totally different views on what they observed. So maybe, uh, maybe they need a third. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Stan. One, uh, one witness would serve to corroborate the testimony of the other witness. Good. Okay, good. So I like the way you're framing that. So basically, if you have just one witness, there's no one really to fact check, right? You have one witness, it's like, okay, you either believe them, you don't believe them, but you, how do you even know whether you should believe them or not? When you have two witnesses, now you can corroborate, you can kind of use one almost against the other. So let me elaborate on that for a second. Um, the Talmud, there's a tractate called Sanhedrin, which is the tractate all about the court system, the legal system in Jewish law. It's a big, big, big tractate. It's a ton of, ton of details. But one of the things that's mentioned there that's very fascinating is the process by which the court would, would examine and cross-examine these witnesses. And first, I probably should mention, and I've mentioned this before in other sessions and other courses, but for the benefit of, number one, refreshing this topic, but also for those that haven't been in these classes before, um, the Jewish legal system is not adversarial by nature, it is inquisitorial. What's the difference? Adversarial is the way the US system works, where you have a judge, and then you have two sides that present their case, but really, the goal is, the goal of each side is not to convince the judge, it's really to disprove the other side. Are you with me? It's like they're not really turning to the judge as much as they are facing off against each other, right? And maybe there's a jury watching and observing, but really it's more of like they're kind of facing off against each other and, and that's kind of the way the system works. In the Jewish legal system, in the, with the Bet Din or the Sanhedrin, the evidence is presented directly to the judges. There's more than one judge. The judges and the judges are the ones that examine the evidence directly, ask the questions directly. In other words, you don't have your attorney questioning your witness. You understand what I'm saying? And you don't have the other side challenging the witness. That's not how it works. It's not like the, it's not a spectacle of, of, of attorneys. It's, I mean, you could also have attorneys present to help advise, but it's really about presenting the evidence directly to the judges whether three or 23 or 70, whatever it is, whatever number it is based on the case. And the judges directly will ask the questions. The judges were highly trained in things like body language, in the ability to kind of know the questions to ask that get people a little bit nervous, right? And get people to kind of break down if they've crafted a story to ask a question that 
likely the liar, just put it that way, might not, wouldn't think about. And because the judges were trained in this type of behavioral psychology and, 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 and that, that whole system. So here's the point. The point is that the judges directly dealt with the witnesses. And so when you have one witness, okay, there's, as Stan said, there's still a chance that somebody could make up a story and get away with it. Whereas when you have two witnesses, now you can separate the witnesses. And that's, as the Talmud describes what they did. If two witnesses came to the court and said, we both saw this thing, the judges would say, that's great, or not great, but whatever, like, um, wonderful, give us the testimony. First thing is, we're separating you guys into different rooms or at different times. And, and, and do the full run of all the battery of questions in order to ascertain, did, did this really happen? Did they really see it? Are they telling the same story? You cannot, and that's really the idea, and I think Alice was also saying this, one person, eh, who knows? Two people is much stronger. And part of the reason why two people is much stronger is now you can compare the stories. Do they actually line up? Right? Not when they're sitting next to each other and, you know, <laughs> passing notes. No, separate rooms, separate times, separate interrogations. I, I'm calling it interrogation. It's more of a, it's called Drisha Vachakira, which means an inquiry and a Chakira is whatever. Yeah, an, an, an inquisitorial type of thing. It's an, it's an inquiry into the witnesses. When you have two, it's much stronger. Now, that's one approach. I asked you before, let's just reset why, why we're talking about this. I asked you, I presented the Torah. The Torah says you need two witnesses or three witnesses. No, there's two or more witnesses. One witness is not believed or is not accepted as valid proof of whatever. And I asked you the question, why do you think two? Why do you think at least two? Why not one? And we got into this conversation that two is more believable than one. There's another school of thought in Judaism, very interestingly, in Jewish law that says, no, it has nothing to do with believability. It's simply a decree from the Torah. It's a divine decree. God says, one witness not accepted, two witnesses accepted. Is it because two are necessarily 100% foolproof and we believe? We don't, not necessarily 100%, but the Torah says, it's like, you know, the Torah says, don't wear a garment that's, that's woven with wool and linen. Why not? Is it a fashion faux pas? I don't know. I'm not an expert. The Torah, the Bible says, don't wear wool and linen. Don't wear wool and linen. Fine, that's it. We got, we got our marching orders. So the same Torah, the same God says, one witness, is, one witness not accepted, two witnesses accepted. This is another way to understand it. And as we'll see in today's class, there, there are different... Differences of opinion as to what is the foundation of these two witness, of the two witness um, standard. Is it divine decree or is it logical? And there's some blending also between the two, which has fascinating ramifications, as we'll see toward the end of today's lesson. So keep all of this in mind. Um, but something fascinating. Something fascinating. I want to share with you text number two. Take a look at this. This is coming from, let's see the source, Maimonides. Always a good source. Maimonides says the following regarding two witnesses. We are commanded. You see that right down here? We are commanded. 
this is by biblical law, to issue a verdict on the basis of the testimony of two witnesses, even though, as Maimonides says right here, there exists the possibility that both, sorry, that they both are lying. In other words, in other words, is it that we absolutely 100% know, 100%, 100% know that this is the case? Can you know anything 100%? Right? There's a possibility that both are lying. Nevertheless, since they seem honest to us, Maimonides says, we go by the general assumption that they are good people. It is about this issue that the scripture tells us the hidden things are for God to deal with, but the revealed things are for us and for our children forever to carry out all the words of this teaching. Let me explain what he's saying. So, it gets to the issue that I just mentioned. Is it divine decree? Is it logical? Maimani seems to take the position that it's not necessarily logical that we believe two witnesses. It's more, of a, more along the lines of a divine decree that two are, two are believed. And yet, he also says that there is an assumption when it comes to two kosher witnesses, you know, and, and let me explain kosher witnesses. A kosher witness is somebody who's not, somebody who has a track record of lying or criminal activity, etc. Someone that has a track record of non-believability would not be a kosher valid witness to be counted amongst those two witnesses. Now, if you had another two witnesses in addition to that person, sure, knock yourself out. But in general, you need two kosher witnesses. So Maimonides says, number one, it's a divine decree. But there's also this believability issue when you have two kosher witnesses and the stories match up, we assume that it's correct. And, and obviously, it doesn't mean like, if they said it, we believe it and, and don't ask any more questions. I, not, this is going back to what I said before. There's Drisha, Chakira, they put them through the ringer. They put them through a litany of questions, separate the two witnesses, and make sure that to the best of the court's ability of, of discernment that they discern that this indeed actually is what they witnessed to happen. But when that happens, yes, somebody might raise their hand and say, one second, one second. Let's say someone is observing the court. Uh, judges, how do you know with 100% absolute certainty that these two witnesses are really telling the truth? Maybe they concocted a story and really did a good job in fabricating the story. Maybe they're really good at getting on the same page, making up the details, and aligning their stories with each other, etc. How do you know? And that's what Maimonides is addressing here. You never really know. You can't know. There's a certain line past which you can't really know. But we have to do our best. And that's why he quotes, I'm going to put it back up. It's very important to see the, that verse that he quotes from Deuteronomy. He says, the hidden things are for God. The revealed things are for us. In other words, the hidden things we'll never know. What's lurking in the heart and mind of another person, in the deepest recesses of their core, how are you ever going to know that? You ask somebody, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? You never know if what they tell you is the truth. You never really know. But we have to operate to the best of our ability. That doesn't mean we roll the dice you know, and, and, and act reckless. But once we passed this reasonable, more than reasonable, this very sure threshold, then that satisfies the obligation of the court. And the judges can judge and convict based on that testimony. 
I am doing a Tamurakai. I, it's possible that they're lying. We tried our best. We ran them through the ringer, through the battery of questions. And it holds up. Is it still possible? Anything's possible, right? Conspiracy theory, it's possible. The hidden things are for God. But the revealed things are for us and our children. We can only operate on what we see and based on the evidence that's presented. Otherwise, all the courts would shut down because you never really know. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. Questions or comments thus far? Laying the foundation before we get into some very interesting cases. Questions, comments? By the way, you guys are trusting me regarding what the Talmud says and the text that I put in front of you. I'm really only one witness. You probably should bring in an... No, I'm kidding. All right. Yes, you with me? Okay, good. Fine. So entrenched is the requirement for there to be two witnesses, two kosher witnesses. Oh, and one... Let me add another layer to this. Another definition of a kosher versus non-kosher witness um, is relatives. Relatives are not kosher witnesses. For the two. In other words, a parent and child, siblings, grandparent, grandchild, even brother-in-law, like even not only immediate family, but even kind of loose family, right? But somewhat, I mean, not like, we're all cousins at some point, right? Somewhere. But it's, um, was it seven degrees of Kevin Bacon or something? Anyway, the point is like this, that relatives are not valid witnesses. They're not kosher. Why not? There are sources for this in, from scripture, but also there is this believability issue where it's easier to concoct a story with a relative than it is, whatever. Even if we believe that these two witnesses, we're gonna have a text soon that says, even Moses and Aaron, who were brothers, right? The greatest of the great, they could not testify in a court together side by side. It's not kosher. Yeah, Stan. Were uh, uh, non-Jewish uh, witnesses acceptable to uh uh, the bed-in courts, or this Ex only apply Excellent question. Excellent question. In a Jewish court, it depends on what the issue is. When it's an issue that is sensitive to Jewish law, you would need Jewish witnesses. But there are certain cases where it's more like of a universal thing. Like, um, we, we, and we'll get to some of these cases um, a little bit later on in the class. So essentially, things that are more pertinent to Jewish law, ritual, etc., would be limited to Jewish witnesses, whereas in certain cases where it's more of a general nature, then all are, all are invited into the, uh, for that testimony. Um, so th here the, the, we, we have a quote now, we have a source, text number three, which gets to this idea of siblings being disqualified, even if they're the most trustworthy siblings in the world that you can imagine, even as the, as the example is given, even Moses and Aaron. And this comes from the Ketzot HaChoshen, a, a brilliant Jewish legal mind from the uh, 18th century. Take a look at what he writes here in text 3. The reason the law requires two witnesses for evidence in a court of law, he goes by the bi biblical axiom perspective and not the logical. He says two witnesses are a 
biblical decree, divine decree, and not necessarily about logic and about rationale. So look what he says. The reason that the law requires two witnesses for evidence in a court of law is not because we suspect a single witness of lying. Rather, it is a biblical axiom, which is true even if the witness is speaking the truth. Sim in other words, even if we believe that this one witness speaks the truth, it's in an, you just can't operate based on one witness. Similarly, the law disqualifies witnesses who are related to each other, but not because of any possible biases involved, he says, since even Moses and Aaron would be disqualified from testifying about the same incident. If Moses and Aaron got up in court and said, we both saw this thing happen, Moses, Aaron, we love you both, you got a third witness that's not related? <laughs> you got someone else that can corroborate the story? Then we can start, uh, start operating. So we have this, I'm going to call it a hybrid, of the logical idea of two witnesses being stronger than one, and one is, you know, there's no way to fact check the one really against someone else. Two gives you that ability. Two plus gives you the ability. Um, hey, the more the merrier, right? If you have four witnesses, now, you, now the court really can have fun trying to make sure that all the stories line up. Um, but the point is that even when the logic tells you, okay, but in this case, one witness should be trusted, doesn't work. And even if logic tells you, in this case, two witnesses that are related to each other, so they're not kosher witnesses, but in this case, let it slide because they're Moses and Aaron, you know, uh, for heaven's sake. The rule is the rule. Burden of the, the, the burden of evidence is the burden of evidence, and you gotta, you, you got to operate by the law. It's got to be kosher. All right. Which takes us to the question about circumstantial evidence. You see, if the two-witness requirement is based on a very high threshold of proof, then one might say, one might also then apply it to circumstantial evidence and say when the circumstantial evidence is up there, like really high in, in, in certainty, then maybe we should allow it also. Um, I don't know if I said that clearly enough. Let me, let me go back a half a step and then say that again. Let me go back a half a step by saying this. The only valid form of proof that the, for a court of law that, that's biblically stipulated is eyewitness testimony, two, two eyewitnesses testifying about what they saw. What about circumstantial evidence? And I'm going to give you a case from the Talmud in a moment, a very strong circumstantial evidence that the Bible, the Torah, does not speak about. It doesn't give us um, a scenario in the, in the Torah where if you see this and you assume that that's what happened, then you can prosecute or, or, or convict accordingly. It doesn't talk about that. The only standard of evidence is two eyewitnesses or more than two. So the question becomes, what about circumstantial evidence? So here's where it relates to our conversation before. If two witnesses is a divine decree, like that's the only acceptable um, standard of evidence and that's the only acceptable Jewish standard of evidence, then that's it. Circumstantial evidence, from today to tomorrow, it's not going to help. But if you say that it's based on logic, that when you have two witnesses, then it becomes likely to be true, or very likely, or like 99.999% likely, then maybe we should also extend that to circumstantial evidence, which is where our Talmudic story picks up. So if, does that make sense, what I just said? Sort of that, that bridge? Okay. Take a look at the next text. This is one of the most famous examples 
of circumstantial evidence in the Talmud, the story of Rabbi Shimon ben Shatach. All right, rational evidence, text number four. Here we go. Rabbi Shimon ben Shatach. Ben, by the way, means, lowercase ben means the son of. So Shimon, Rabbi Shimon, the son of Shatach said, I once saw a man chase after his friend into a ruin. Ruin means a dilapidated building, which is empty. I ran after him, and when I entered the ruin, I saw a sword dripping with blood in his hand, and his victim was lying dead on the floor. I told him, evil one, who killed this man? It is either you or me, right, because there's no one else around. But what can I do when your blood has not been delivered into my hands for justice, as the Torah explicitly states, by the word of two witnesses, or by the word of three witnesses, shall the condemned person be put to death? However, this is all the, the monologue to this guy. However, God will administer justice to you. It, okay, that, that end quote. So this is the rabbi reporting what once happened. He says, I once saw person A chase person B into an abandoned building. I ran in and I got there after the guy was killed. The guy, the guy is holding a bloody sword in his hand. And I said, evil one, who killed this man? Either you or me. And it wasn't me. I just got here. But what can I do? The Torah says you need two witnesses. So what's the problem here? How many witnesses did you have? Guys, unmute yourself. How many witnesses did we have? Well, you have one. But he didn't actually witness the act. Right. So how many do you have? How many do you have? None. Really. Zero. Yeah. No witnesses. Yeah. No witnesses. Um, all he saw was one guy chase another guy into the building. They disappeared from sight. The next time he came upon these two individuals, one was dead, the other is holding a bloody knife, but he didn't see the act actually happen. So that's why he says, what can I do? When your blood has not been delivered into my hands for justice, the Torah says two or three witnesses, and here we don't even have one. However, he says, God will administer justice to you, and the Talmud continues. It was told that the man, or they say about this story, that the man before leaving the ruin was bitten by a snake and died. And I will say this, halavai, if only all justice would happen, right? All those that, uh, etc. But that doesn't, ha that doesn't typically happen. But nonetheless, we have here a very interesting um, depiction. And that is, and a very interesting law emerges. The Talmud understands, based on this story and other teachings of the Talmud, this is just one excerpt, the Talmud understands that, and this comes from, by the way, uh, Tractate Sanhedrin, the tractate about the courts. The Talmud understands that when the Torah says, when the Bible says two or three witnesses, it is excluding what we would call circumstantial evidence. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I don't even know if this would be called circumstantial evidence or would this be, does anybody, would this be called more than circumstantial evidence? If you see two people running into a building, one is chasing the other with a knife, you walk in a few moments later, the guy is dead on the ground, the other guy's holding the bloody knife, is that still circumstantial? In the U.S. system, that's still circumstantial. Okay, because bottom line is you haven't seen it. There's no, there's no eyewitness testimony. And the Talmud clearly says that when the, uh, the, the Talmud understands the Bible, 
that when it says you need two or three eyewitnesses, they have to see the act actually happening. We've discussed also in that other course, you also have to warn the person, don't do it. It's illegal. They have to say, no, I'm still going to do it. Okay, whatever. But let's leave that aside for right now. You have to actually see the, the, act, the criminal act being committed. Otherwise, you don't have any eyewitnesses. You have someone who saw the before and the after and assumes that what happened was that this guy plunged a knife into the other guy's, in the other guy's chest. But who knows? We're all creative, right? We're all creative people here with imaginations, right? If I ask you this open-ended question, give me a scenario. One guy is chasing the other guy. They go into a building, right? Doors are now closed. No one sees what's going on inside. The, the guy who's being chased ends up dead on the ground with a knife. The other guy's holding the knife. Come up with a scenario where the guy holding the knife didn't do it. We can come up with scenarios. Right? He was about to do it. The guy took the knife from him. He th hey, who knows? We can come up with a, 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 you know, dozens of scenarios where it wasn't the, what appears to be based on the circumstantial evidence. So the, Torah, so the Talmud says, in this case, Rabbi Shimon Shatach um, says it very eloquently. He says, look, this case was not delivered into, into human hands for justice. In other words, God didn't orchestrate it so that we could act on it in our criminal justice system. Now, that doesn't mean that justice won't be served, because, and this is very important, Judaism believes that God runs the show. Now, yes, this is a faith-based approach. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have any courts, because God will handle it all. But what we believe is, in Judaism, is that God gave human beings the mandate to set up a justice system, courts and judges, and God also said in the Torah, God says to us, here are the parameters in which you should operate. If it fits into that box, go for it. If it doesn't, don't. Ah, but ju justice won't be served. Hold on. We're the only ones that can perform justice? We run the show? Right? We created the world? We didn't create the world. There's, a, there's, a, there's another system. The system that we've been given, this is, so this is the way Judaism looks at law. Does that make sense, this framework? God runs the show. God gave us a mandate within, a certain, within certain parameters. God says, this is your sandbox, legal sandbox, to operate within. When a case falls outside of the box, we don't touch it. You're going to let a murderer walk free? God is going to take care of things. Now, what about a case where you, you're concerned about society, danger, etc.? To that, we have to refer back to, a to the, our previous course, Crime and Consequence, where we spoke about other measures, extra-legal measures, that can be taken to ensure the security and the safety of a community. But, that's, but let's leave that, that. That's another layer to this. That's not strict law. That's another layer, extra-legal, that we want to leave for other discussions. But based on the law and the parameters of the law, we're told to operate within a certain framework. Outside that framework, that's the way it is. Um, Maimonides gives a rationale. Interestingly, he gives a rationale why the case of the, of the knife, chaser, ruin, murder, etc., why Rabbi Shimon Shatach said, I can't do anything, why the courts would not do anything. Uh, could not convict in that case based on the circumstantial evidence. This is something we did quote in that other course, but it's, it's uh, relevant here. 
And it's a very important text that has a lot of ramifications when we think about the U.S. legal system. Text number five. This is Rambam, Maimonides. Evidence that is based on probability, in other words, the most likely scenario when the guy is chasing the other guy with a knife and they, the, uh, the, the, the chase E ends up dead and the other guy is holding the knife, dripping with blood. The most likely probability is that he killed him. Okay, but it's still probability. Evidence that is based on probability has a margin of error. In some cases, the margin of error is wider than in other cases. If the Torah had permitted the courts to punish in a case where the evidence is based on even the highest degree of probability, this would have led to punishing suspected criminals even when there was a slightly lesser degree of probability. Ultimately, the courts would have been begun to punish on the, base, uh, on the basis of evidence that is subjective to the intuition of the judge, in which case we might have ended up killing an innocent person. I want to walk you through a few scenarios. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Basically, Maimonides is citing a slippery slope. Once you open it up to probability, well then all bets, all bets are off, the, the floodgates are open, and now it's up to the judge what they feel emotionally you know, is, is, is compelling, or what they, you know, what, let me give you a scenario. Let's say the Jewish courts would have said, you know, in the case of Rabbi Shem ben Shatach, he sees this guy, chased the other guy, obviously the guy did it. I mean, come on, seriously, like, it's a 99% chance that, that this guy did it. So let's convict him. All right, what about another case? Let's say um, we didn't see the guy chase the other guy, into the ruin. We just found the victim murdered in that in that building, in that in that uh, in that building. And we have evidence that the that some guy had threatened to kill this guy, you know, in a in a letter that he sent to him a day before. Okay? So we don't have any evidence that he was there, but we have evidence of a threat. You convict him or not? Oh, no, 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 no. That's where we draw the line. No, no, that's, we don't know. Okay? It's a little bit arbitrary. You see what I'm saying? It's a little bit arbitrary. Like, when you see the guy chasing him in, oh, yeah, of course. When he didn't, but he sent the threat, yeah. Now, what happens if you find the murder weapon in the guy's house? So you didn't see him chase the guy into the building. But you have now a dead body. You have the blood on the murder weapon in the guy's house, and the guy had sent the threat the day before. What do you guys think now? Aha! Maybe we should prosecute him, convict him. You see what's going on here? It's just based on what, what like pushes us over the edge. That's completely subjective. It's completely subjective. Right? There's no, there's no hard and fast rule. What's the rule? If there's no rule, then there... If you can't articulate the rule, then, then, then you got to ask the question, what are we saying here? Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical of U.S. law. I'm just saying that beyond a reasonable doubt is not a threshold. It's, sorry, it's not, doesn't mean the same thing to every person. Would you agree with that? Stan, I have to look at you because you're my, you're my legal guy, right? Um, beyond a reasonable doubt, could mean any number of things to any number of people. It's a pretty wide range. This is true of juries, right, which is like of the non-professional legal, you know, 
individuals, and even within judges, I'm sure. If you asked, you know, if you took 100 judges and asked them to define what is beyond a reasonable doubt, you would probably get a bunch of different answers. That's the way it is. Once you open it up to, I think this is enough, all, all bets are off. Maimonides says, we never, in Jewish law, we don't open it up to, I think this is good enough. Because then that standard might erode, and before long, you are convicting people, let's say, of murder, when the evidence just isn't really there, and you might end up killing an innocent person. And that is unconscionable. Maimonides, I believe, continues to say in that quote, which we, it's not in this quote, but in, in the original source text, I believe he says, it's better to allow 100 guilty people to not prosecute 100, to not convict 100 guilty people, than to put to death, to execute even one innocent person. This is Maimonides, you know, 800, 900 years ago, um, espousing very progressive, I'm going to call it progressive, ideals about the criminal justice system. It's better to let 100 guilty people theoretically walk, possibly, than even one person convict falsely. So, let me just tighten things back up here with, the, with, with, what we're, with what we're talking about. In Torah, in the Talmud, the standard of evidence in a criminal case, two eyewitnesses. Two eyewitnesses that we could bring in, have a conversation with, grill, cross-examine, compare the stories. That's a standard. You have a standard now. Circumstantial evidence, what's the standard? What are you going to start saying? The standard is if you see a guy running into a building holding a knife. That's a standard. What kind of standard is that? You need eyewitness testimony is a standard. Everything else is circumstantial, probable, etc. What's interesting is the following. I'm going to get, we're going to get a little bit mind-bendy here. You need two witnesses to criminally convict in Jewish law. But you don't necessarily need two witnesses to establish a fact. What do I mean? The Talmud tells a story that there was a woman and a young boy who moved into Jerusalem. Listen to this story. It's a crazy story. A woman and a young child, a young boy, move into Jerusalem. And they were like mother and son. In other words, by, she acted like the mother, he acted like the son. Like everyone assumed, mother and son. No reason to believe not so. Eventually, as the years went on, it was discovered and two witnesses testified to the fact that there was an incestuous relationship between the two. Okay? Now, incest in Torah is a crime. It's, uh, it's, it's not legal in, in Torah law. The question now is, now, this is before DNA tests. No birth certificate, no DNA, no blood test. This is going back 2,000 years. Let me ask you a question. How do we know that this is the mother and this is the son? How do we know? Do we need two witnesses that were there at the birth? Are you with me on my question? The answer is you don't. You don't. To convict, you need two witnesses 
that a certain act happened. But sometimes for the underlying reality, you can go by what we would call probable evidence. Does that make sense? Does that sound a little inconsistent? I hope not. I'm just pointing out that there is this little wrinkle. Are you with, is everyone every with me on this? You need two witnesses to say that there was this relationship between this person and this person to convict. But the underlying reality that this is a mother, this is a son, that we can go by what we would call circumstantial, maybe more than circumstantial, but just the evidence that's, that's, that's kind of obvious and out there. In other words, the Torah says that you convict based on two or three witnesses or more. That's referring to the act, to the criminal act itself. How do we know that it's a criminal act? So that, 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 those facts have already been established outside the criminal justice system, and therefore we go by those facts on the ground. Like everyone assumes, this is a mother, this is a son. No reason to assume not. They've been, they live together, they, they've been presenting themselves as such. So that's the assumption, and that becomes the, the fact, the reality. Later on, if there are two witnesses that say something happened, we don't now need to find two witnesses that she is the birth mother. Does that make sense? Yes? Did I confuse anybody on this? Anybody disagree with this? Oh, I confused Alice. Sorry. Okay. All right. Fine. If, if, if that was confusing, okay, we'll leave it. But now I want to get to a case that will form our core case study for today. And here's what you need to know. Here's some background information. In Jewish law, two witnesses are required for all matters related to marriage and divorce. If you've been to a Jewish wedding, so typically, traditionally under the chuppah, there are two witnesses that are called up to witness the ring, giving ceremony, etc. Two witnesses sign on the ketubah. Okay. If you're familiar with that, you know what I'm talking about. If not, take my word for it. There's two witnesses by a wedding, and also if, if, if there's a divorce, there are also two witnesses that... That, that, uh, that testified to that. So anything related to marriage, separation, divorce, etc., needs two witnesses. But what happens in a situation where a woman is unsure if her husband is dead or alive? Okay, and we're going to have a case study in a moment that talks about this. What happens if a fellow is traveling, on a ship overseas back in the day, lost at sea, and we're not sure, alive or dead. So how many witnesses do you need for her to remarry? Because she might still be a married woman. If her husband's still alive, she's a married woman, she can't, re she can't marry somebody else. But if he's dead, if he passed away, then she can, she's a widow, she can marry. She can marry someone else. How many witnesses do you need to testify that the husband passed away? That takes us to our case study which is going to be text number eight. Take a look at this text. Here we go. This is a real case. It comes from uh, the Tashbits, from the 1300s. Two Jewish men embarked on a ship owned and operated by an Arab company. The ship was headed for Algiers. As the ship approached its destination, the passengers were terrified by the sight of an approaching pirate ship from Italy. In order to escape, all the passengers jumped into the sea and began to swim to the shore. 
One of the Jewish passengers realized soon after jumping into the water that he would not be able to make it to the shore. So he went back to the ship. And he, got, he climbed back onto the ship. So it's two, two Jewish guys. One, both in, in the ocean. One trying to swim to shore. One goes back onto the ship. A miracle occurred when a sudden strong wind pushed the ship onto the shore before the pirates were able to attack it. Now the other Jew that remained in the water Right, one swam back to the ship and the ship was saved with a gust of wind, but the other Jew was nowhere to be found. Didn't get up back on the ship, didn't make it to shore, lost at sea. The surviving Jew, the one who made it back to the ship, claimed that he saw his friend struggling in the waters. He didn't seem to know how to swim. Furthermore, upon reaching the shore, the surviving Jewish passenger claimed to have looked back at the sea and seen the body of his friend floating face down, lifelessly, on the waters without any sign of life. There were also statements heard from air passengers that claimed that the missing Jew was not taken hostage by the pirates and that he definitely died in the wild waters of the sea. The missing passenger has a son, the legal heir to his father's estate, who wishes to take control of his father's estate. Can we legally assume that the father is indeed dead and that the estate has been legally transferred to the son's ownership? So here we have, let's leave the Arab um, witnesses out for a moment. I know this question was asked before, but let's focus on the, the one Jewish witness. So here we have a case. Two guys on a ship, one, both jump off, one makes it back to the ship, the other one doesn't make it to the ship or the shore. The, guy, the one guy that made it said he saw the struggling, he saw the guy floating, he's gone. Now the son says, all right, I'd like to take control of my father's estate. So here's the question. Can he do so? Can we legally determine that this guy has passed away? What's it based on the testimony of how many witnesses? One. So can we, yes, are you with me on this? Can we establish the death of this fellow based on the testimony of one witness? So for this, we're going to look at a similar case. What would happen if the question was not regarding the um, estate, but what if the question was about the, the wife? Can we assume that she's a widow or not? Again, same scenario. There's a guy lost at sea. One other guy says he, he saw him dead, but there's only one, one witness. And there's a wife at home. Is she a wife or is she a widow? And the difference is, in Jewish law, is she still married? Or can she now marry because she's a widow? What's, what's her status? Jewish law says unequivocally she's allowed to marry. 100% she's allowed to marry based on the testimony of one witness. In fact, we accept one witness. We accept her testimony. If she came back and said, I was on a trip with my husband and he died, he fell overboard, whatever it is, and he's dead, we accept her even though she might, she has, even though she, we might suspect that she has an agenda. We still accept her testimony. We accept hearsay. If we overhear people talking about the story and it's not even formal testimony, we accept it. We accept written testimony without cross-examination. Somebody wrote something and after, right, we accept written testimony. We're very lenient in the case, in, in this type of case. The question is why? The question is why? Is it because we're being compassionate to the widow and we don't want her to be stuck? 
So we say, look, when there's a widow, when there's a woman, uh, the woman, the wife, the wife, women, wife, widow, we don't know what her status is. But since her future is at stake, what, what, what's she going to do? Just sit at home, wait for her husband, who probably is dead for the rest of her life, and, and, and we won't let her legally uh, be called a widow to remarry? That's not fair. So out of compassion, so we say, you know what, we're, we're lowering the standard of evidence. We know that the standard evidence is lowered in this case. The question is why? Is it because out of compassion for her, or is it because in this case, the one witness won't lie? Why? Because how will that witness look when that guy comes back? Are you with me? What, in a case where you can't prove it otherwise, so then we're concerned maybe one witness will lie. But in a case where what's at stake is, is a guy alive or dead? And if the guy is really alive and is not dead, then he could literally show up and knock at his door and come home and then the witness is now a verifiable liar and may be prosecuted. So in that case, because there's a built-in check, he's not going to lie. In other words, do we allow it because he's not going to lie? So we accept the one witness testimony? Or do we allow it out of compassion for her? Based on how you answer that question, it's going to affect the case of, tech, of text 8, the, for the case study. Of the, of the estate. If it's about the fact that one witness is not going to lie when they're going to get busted, when the guy shows up at the door, well then, if that's the case, then we allow the son to inherit the estate because the one witness won't lie. But if it's only out of Rahman, out of compassion for the wife, for the widow, then we don't necessarily have the same compassion for this child and the estate. I mean, the estate is the estate, but it's not, it's not about her remarrying, it's about the son getting money, and that might be a different equation. Does that make sense? So depending on how you understand the leniency regarding the, um, the, the wife, the wife-widow, um, is how we would, is how we would adjudicate, the, is how we would understand the case or determine the case uh, with the child in the estate. There are differences of opinion. Some say that in, in this is a, a matter of dispute in the, what we would call the, the more, not the modern, but like in the last several hundred years, these cases were discussed. And some say that the, um, the exception for the widow is because of, she's a widow, or because we don't want her to be stuck without being able to, to marry. So we, we allow that to happen, but the estate would not be the case. Um, we would tell the son, it, it, it's, it's being held until we have more proof about your father being killed or not at sea, and, or dying at sea. And the other opinion says, no, it's about the fact that one person is not going to lie in a case where the, the evidence is going to show up on the doorstep. So if, one, if the guy says he saw the other guy floating in the water, he couldn't swim, then we believe it, whether it's for the wife, whether it's for the child and the estate. I want to conclude, all right, I hope that makes sense. All right, so in, in, if that case happens, God forbid, then uh, you got to look at these two opinions and it gets figured out on the ground. Here's how I want to conclude the class. I want to circle back to what we said before about standards of evidence. At the end of the day, as logical as we might be able to figure things out and say, well, this standard seems like it's ironclad. At the end of the day, there's no such thing as ironclad. Um, we go by, in Jewish law, we go by what the Torah says. Two witnesses, three witnesses, two plus witnesses constitutes valid um, uh, proof in, in, a, in, a criminal in, a, in a criminal case. Otherwise, it falls short. Protocol. I, what about justice? What about justice if it doesn't fit into this box? Justice will happen. And to illustrate this, I want to conclude with the following scenario. This will absolutely blow you away. But halt cup for a second. Stay with me for, give me 60 seconds. 
the high court, the Sanhedrin, that dealt with capital cases, like murder, etc., where the penalty could be death, consisted of 23 judges. The way it works in Jewish law is, if all 23 judges convict murder, the fellow is not executed. Listen carefully. It's the exact opposite from the U.S. system. If all 23 judges say guilty, the person is not put to death. Why? Because in Jewish law we say that means that the court didn't do its due diligence. If no one found, if not one judge found a reason to be skeptical, it means that the court is too biased and the person is not punished with capital punishment. So imagine. And the way they would vote, listen, just we're drawing, through this, drawing you through the scenario, the way the court would vote is they started from the youngest to the oldest, the least senior to the most senior, and each one in turn spoke their verdict. Guilty, 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 or innocent, whatever it was. Now, if the majority said, just, just to clarify, if 20 said guilty and 3 said innocent, you put them to death. You put the, 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 the criminal to death. If 19 and 4, whatever it is, a majority of at least 2 over the other side, that's be a majority not by 1 but by at least 2, um, you, 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 you apply capital punishment, but not if it's unanimous. So imagine, imagine the following scenario. You're judge number 23. Listen to this. You're judge number 23, and you believe he's guilty. And all the 22 prior judges said guilty, 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 guilty. And you're judge number 23. And you believe guilty, but you know that if you say guilty, this guy, I don't know if he walks, but he doesn't get the death penalty. Right, because unanimous flips the other way. So you're the 23rd judge. So what are you going to think? I'm going to outsmart the system. I'm going to say innocent so that the death penalty should be applied, which is what I want. In other words, right, there's what I do and what I want. There's action and outcome. So what I believe is guilty and I want the outcome to be guilt and death penalty. But if I say guilty, they won't apply the death penalty because it will be unanimous. So let me say innocent, and then he'll get executed. So what do you do? It's a moral dilemma. Jewish law says you cannot, if you believe guilty, say guilty. Don't play God, right? If you believe guilty, you say guilty. 23-0, no death penalty. You cannot say innocent when you believe guilty. It's a perversion of justice. Why? For the same reason that we said in today's class. God, there's, there's a higher system of justice. There is a universe, you want to call it uni universe, divine higher consciousness, whatever you want to call it. God, if, God, if you don't like the word God, then replace it with a new agey term. There is, karma, whatever you want to call it. There is a justice to the universe. That's what we believe. We don't believe that we need to manufacture justice. We respond to the parameters of justice as they unfold. As it unfolds, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't within the human courts. But if it doesn't, we believe in a higher system. We don't believe in having to shoehorn justice in. The, greater, the, all the, the biggest problems begin when human beings, judges, etc., court systems believe that they need to create justice. In Judaism, we don't create the justice, 
we respond to the law. The question is not, what do I say? It's, what does the law say? What does this higher system say? All right, with this, we'll conclude today's class, and we'll conclude the course. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is we have to do what we can, but we know that we're not in control. There's a certain power in recognizing the limitations of our abilities and uh, sometimes letting go and letting God. Um, thank you for joining me. Um, next week is Rosh Hashanah, which interestingly enough, ironically enough, is called the Day of Judgment in Judaism. So everyone should have a good Rosh Hashanah. It's not as scary as it sounds. Should be a, a, a positive day, day of positivity. I want to wish everybody a Shana Tova Masuka, a very happy and healthy and very sweet new year. Um, I'm looking forward to more opportunities to study together in the new Jewish year, which we have coming up in October. Share the word, spread the spread the info to friends. This is the first time I'm teaching this course, Secrets of the Bible at Ali. So, and it's a great course. I've taught it once before. Um, over here at Chabad, uh, but it's a really, really fantastic course. Some of the greatest stories of the Bible from a deep spiritual and personal perspective. You're going to love it. Um, finally, I'll mention this. We are doing, I know, you know, synagogues and services, you know, things are a little bit, you know, oftentimes, not oftentimes, this, uh, right now it's, you know, things are up in the air a little bit with various synagogues. I'll tell you what we're doing. I'll be leading a service a one and a half hour service, 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m., Rosh Hashanah both days, Yom Kippur day as well, 10 to 11.30 a.m., outdoors, safely distanced, outdoors, right at our beautiful location, right on the Beltline. Um, we have canopies to protect against the sun, you know, whatever it is, open canopies, so you're not in the, uh, in the sun if it's too sunny. Um, I lead the services. It's more of an interactive, instructional, engaging learner service so um, think like bad jokes and good stories and insights and hopefully some inspiration, song and prayer as well in English. So if, you, if you're interested, you can check it out on our website, intownjewishacademy.org, or just come by. We'll have a seat for you. All right. Great to see you all. Shana Tova. Love you guys. Shana Tova. Take care. Tova. Happy Thank and healthy you. for all of us and our families. Absolutely. Take care, everybody. See you guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.